May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life, our God. Amen. A few years ago, a long time ago actually, uh, at a youth event, um, it was a small youth event, it was a youth executive in Wellington, and we were invited as part of that to go away in pairs and to spend five minutes each, I think, asking the other person, who are you? And then the other person just had to respond to that question, who are you? Now, I could get you to do it this morning for maybe 30 seconds or a minute, but it's quite a tricky thing to do. Like, once you get past your name and a few things to be able to answer the question, who are you? It was quite a soul-searching exercise as we had to dive down and actually say who we were deep down. Well, I want to suggest that that's what Lent is all about, a time to ask ourselves, who are we? And to dive down deep within ourselves to answer that question. The gospel we heard this morning is the traditional gospel for the first Sunday in Lent. Every year we hear a version of what we heard this morning. Jesus in the wilderness, fasting, praying for 40 days and 40 nights, and providing a model for us as we too enter our 40-day Lenten season. Sundays don't count. Sundays are always feast days, so you don't have to fast on Sundays. What we often don't realise or take account of is where today's reading fits within the wider story. And in Matthew, it comes more or less straight after Jesus' baptism. So at Jesus' baptism, a voice is heard that says... This is my son, the beloved. My favour rests on him. I wonder what we understand by that. This is my son. This is God's son, the beloved. My favour rests on him. What do you understand by that phrase, God's son? That's a real question and you're allowed to provide some answers. What do you understand by that? Any responses? It's too early in the morning, it's 8 o'clock. Well, I think for many people, though when they hear that, they hear that Jesus is part of the Godhead, that Jesus is somehow divine. Uh, But if we compare that to how others at the time of Jesus would have heard that, it's very different. So who else in Jesus' time would have been called Son of God? This is not an uncommon phrase. Any ideas? Hmm? The Roman Emperor. So that's a very important one. The most important son of God in the Roman world is the Emperor, Caesar Tiberius. He is the son of God. And they do understand him to be a God. He has been elevated up into the realm of gods 
And so the emperor cult, worshipping to the, to the divine emperor, is an important way that the empire is held together. It's less important when you get out to the kind of colonial, backward places like Palestine. doesn't go on too much there, but the nearer you get to Rome, the more important that cult gets. So let's just think about that. The emperor is the son of God. It is part of his official title as emperor. And Jesus has just been named son of God. That's treasonous. He could die for that. Because when you are called son of God, that is saying, I am as important as the emperor. More important. I'm the legitimate leader of this place. And it speaks of insurrection and armed uprising and rebellion. So it's not just a nice phrase, son of God, which we, oh, that's nice, he was called son of God. It's a, it carries a whole lot of danger and of expectations to it. Who else was called son of God? Any ideas? Hmm? I suppose the king of the Israelites. Yeah. No, no, he definitely would not have been called the son of God because that would have put him on the same pedestal as yes, Caesar. In his own mind, well, in his own mind, but I can guarantee he never said those words out loud about himself because he knew where that would lead. And it would be in a, well, he probably wouldn't be crucified, but it would be a very swift end. The Caesars did not like other sons of God cruising around. All the kings in the Davidic line were sons of God. Each one of them. Now, the Davidic kings, the kings of Israel, they were all sons of God. Now, that, they were never seen as being divine. That's not part of Judaism. But they were seen as being special, slightly elevated. And so when David was named king, he was a son of God. So the title son of God carries with it a whole lot of expectations of the restoration of the Davidic line, of David's line of kings in the southern kingdom. Again, it speaks of the overthrow of the Romans, the restoration of the golden age of Israel, while well, the southern king, kingdom, Judah, the, uh, the restoration of the Davidic kings. And so again, that's a dangerous thing. But it carries all these expectations in people's heads. All these hopes, all these dreams, and all these dangers. And there were a few other notable people who were also called sons of God in the Bible. Again, not divine, but just these are important people. So important people were sons of God, but they carried with them all these expectations. So Jesus is given at his baptism this title, Son of God. You are my son, the beloved. On you my favour rests. What did he understand by that? Well, how was he going to live that out? Well, as soon as that happens, then... He is taken into the wilderness by the angel, by the Spirit. 
And we often think about that as a time of prayer and fasting and preparation, but actually it was a time of working out what did that phrase mean? What did it mean to be Son of God? Which of those models of Son of God, the Imperial Rome, the Davidic kings, which of those models was he going to follow? Or was he going to do something completely different? And so he is driven into the wilderness. Now we often think of wilderness as a bad place, but actually in the Bible it's a great place. It's where people go to work out who they are. It's the place where you go to be with God. So Moses was in the desert after he fled from Egypt. And he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights while he chiseled out the the ten words on the stones. Some of the prophets went and spent 40 days and 40 nights in prayer and fasting. The Hebrew people spent 40 years, not in fasting, but 40 years in the wilderness with exactly that question. We are the people of God. What does it mean to be the people of God? How do they live that out? Is is that the same as how the Egyptians live it out? Does the Canaanites live it out? Or is it something different? They all have multiple gods. What does it mean to be the people of one God? And so the desert is the place. The wilderness is the place to go to wrestle and to reflect on who you are in God. And how we live out that identity. So that's what Lent is. A place, a time for us to wrestle with that question. Who are we? Who are we in God? And how do we live that out? What understandings about ourselves do we need to give up? What new ways of seeing ourselves do we need to pick up? What old ways of living do we need to let go of? What new ways do we need to pick up? We're always growing in that understanding and always growing and needing to grow in our understanding of who we are as children of God and how we live that out. It doesn't matter how old we are. We have never arrived. We are always on that journey. Well, at the end of that time, Jesus is tested. Now, we commonly call this the temptations of Christ. Which always sounds to me like he was offered chocolate cake. Are you going to eat the chocolate cake or not? Hmm, I'm tempted by the chocolate cake. Especially at breakfast. Should you have chocolate cake for breakfast? The word that we translate as tempted can also be translated as tested. And I think tested is a much better word. And lots of the commentators use that word. Tested. He's not just kind of given some moral dilemmas, see which way he's going to flip-flop. But actually this is about who he is. He has spent 40 days in the desert wrestling with who is he? What does it mean to be the Son of God? And then the devil comes and says, So, you're the Son of God. What does that mean? How are you going to live that out? And offer some three choices. Now, you're going to say to John, the Bible says, if, if you are the Son of God, the devil's not sure. It's a really interesting thing, but in Matthew, there's a construction that's translated as if here. 
But everywhere else in Matthew's Gospel, it's translated since. There's no question involved. But when the first translators into English were dealing with this, they kind of thought, oh no, the devil's testing him to see if he is the Son of God. So on this occasion, you can translate it as if. So I will go with if. But really, the devil knows who Jesus is. There is no question. He knows who Jesus is and is saying to Jesus, Okay, you've been called Son of God. Which of these models are you going to go with? Are you going to go with Imperial Rome? Are you going to go with the Davidic line? Or are you going to do something completely different? Let's have a look. Let's test you. Now, the interesting thing is, if you read the commentaries, and I think I read five, they all had a different take on what those three tests were about. And I could probably talk about all five of those commentaries and their different takes, but that would take a while. And in the end, I think the thing that we can take from what Jesus does is that He rejects those models, doesn't he? He has offered the imperial way, and he says no. He has offered the way of wealth and fame, and he says no. He he has offered the way of attracting people with amazing signs and wonders. They'll be blown away with the amazing things that he can do. And he says No, for me, being son of God is not about these things. Son of God, for me, is about living out God's generosity and justice and love. So his model of son of God, his understanding of son of God, his understanding of who he is as son of God doesn't fit those expectations doesn't fit any of them he's not going to live up to them and it's said right there at the beginning in the desert this is something new this is something different going on here and we can see that almost immediately so straight after this Jesus goes and picks a few disciples his first disciples it's a little time, a little description of his beginning ministry in Galilee, and then he offers his very first block of teaching, which we've spent the last four or five weeks listening to, the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with the Beatitudes, where he completely turns upside down people's idea of who is the most important people in society. In his society, well, the most important was the emperor, the son of God, who had all that power, all that military might, all that wealth, all that splendor, all that Rome had with it. And then there were the high priests and the wealthy, the Judean elite, and then there were the pious. They were the people of greatest honor. They were the ones blessed by God. But Jesus says, blessed, honored are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the mild, those who hunger and thirst for God's justice, 
the pure in heart, the peacemakers. An entirely different list. His understanding of the Son of God is different. His understanding of who the most important people are is entirely different. So what happens in the wilderness sets the tone for what happens from this point on. What happens in the wilderness anchors him in an identity where he will live out God's compassion, generosity, justice and aroha. Well, Lent is a time for us to join Jesus in that task. Working out what it means for us to be sons and daughters of God, followers of Jesus, the Beloved. It's a time for us to work out how we live that out in our daily lives. So my prayer for you this Lent is that you will spend it praying, wrestling with this. It's not an easy thing. And maybe you'll have to spend some time just asking yourself, who are you? And digging down, thinking about that. And as you do that, to ask the question, who are you to God? Because that's the fundamental question. Who are you to God? May this Lent be a time of joy, of growth, of being anchored. May you hear that you are a child of God, the Beloved, and learn to live that out in your daily life.